The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself. Because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order? Cashback guru? Low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you. Because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store. Even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. This is the story of Harry's. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. Then one day, an ordinary guy got ripped off buying razors. He was so fed up that he and his best friend started a company to fix shaving. They called it Harry's. By taking less profit and selling online, Harry's can offer quality blades for less. You can even get Harry's 5-blade razor and shave gel for free when you sign up. Just cover shipping. Click or go to harrys.com and enter code RAZOR at checkout. That's RAZOR, R-A-Z-O-R. Welcome to the final Rotowire Prospect Podcast of 2015. Clay Link alongside lead prospect writer James Anderson. And happy to welcome special guest Derek Van Riper to the program, his first Rotowire Prospect Podcast, I believe, anyway. Thanks for taking a uh, break from all your other duties to join us, Derek. Hey, thanks Thanks for the invite. I do feel like a special guest, and that's pretty rare. Uh, pretty rare failing for me. <laughs> I think you're the the first special guest we've had on the show. Yeah, so, uh, definitely feel feel pride and take pride in that one. Yeah, we'll have to do it again early uh, next year. I know you've you've been pushing to grade Big Sean on the podcast at some point. It's going to happen. 2016 is going to be the year. We we yeah. can't grade Big Sean as our first solo rapper to grade, so yeah. that's going to have to wait. But uh, we'll we'll get to it kind of in the the dog days of summer, I would imagine. We've Who, been who's first. Is it Easy E? I don't know if you can grade him individually. I mean, we've graded NWA. Oh, you could grade him. I guess you could. I mean, he's got good solo stuff. Don't get me wrong. <coughs> uh, I think we kind of hit on a lot of his his tools. I think our first our first NWA. grade might be Nas for solo. That might solo be good. Artists. Yeah, we've, good choice. We've done Started. a lot of a lot of groups. We haven't been grading rap groups on the off season podcast, but something we're definitely going to start doing again. As a little bonus portion of the show once 2016 rolls around. But, uh, James, we're going to be touching on your Rymel Tapia Austin Meadows article that went up a couple weeks ago. Uh, the th- and, and also touching, uh, I mean, 
in doing so, touch giving some of our thoughts on on the AFL. Derek, you were down there as well. We, we've touched on a lot of players, but love to get some of your thoughts on some of those guys you saw, some of the the standouts in your opinion. Uh, but we have some big trades to get to. Go back and check out the, the first two AFL pods uh, if you get a chance. But more trades to get to, starting with the. Shelby Miller trade. I have a feeling in a couple of years we'll be looking at this as the Dansby Swanson trade. But uh, I mean, the general consensus in the industry seems to be that it was you know a huge win for Atlanta, pretty bad trade for for Arizona. You guys on that same boat completely agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it was probably the craziest trade I've seen. Uh, maybe since like the D-backs traded away Justin Upton that I mean a lot of people have been talking about the the Will Myers James Shields trade but I think this one uh my initial reactions were that this was a worse trade uh than that one uh back when back when that went down so uh really kind of confusing on Arizona's end especially just because you know you can make a case that doesn't even make them better this year if you really believe in in Ciarte and his his defensive value uh, you could make a case that Aaron Blair could maybe do 75% of what Shelby Miller's going to do this year, and in that case it's a terrible trade. But uh, Dansby Swanson's kind of the big reason why I think it's uh absolute heist for Atlanta just because like, I, I would be hesitant to include Swanson if I was trying to acquire a guy like Jose Fernandez, let alone a guy like Shelby Miller who's probably not even a top 30 starting pitcher in baseball. And shortstop's a, an area of need for that team. I mean, maybe not according to them. They they love Nick Ahmed's defense. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know how you can be serious about about having him as your starter, uh, especially in a year when you're, when you're really looking to, to push, uh, make a postseason, earn a postseason berth. But we'll see. I, I guess you know he is a college bat. You know, he's, he's the, the proximity isn't that far off but i guess he, he does need some more seasoning Derek, you, you kind of agree that it was just kind of egregious uh in, in the braves favor here yeah I, I think getting not only quality and quantity in a deal like that is always good and ciarte i mean he could be a piece the braves decided to just flip to somebody else but you get a few years of control on him mm-hmm. shelby miller going to arizona you get three years of a guy that's never had a whip below one two his FIP last season in Atlanta was 345, and if you think about it, it's a more difficult place to pitch at Chase Field than at Turner Field, so he gets a park downgrade. I'm not that high on this move at all. I'm, I think I've been lower than most on Shelby Miller, really ever since he had yeah. some troubles in the upper levels of the Cardinals system. Mm-hmm. To me, the fact that they gave him away, the Cardinals traded him away to Atlanta last offseason, I know it was part of the Jason Hayward deal. I know Cardinals fans love Jason Hayward right now, um, so hopefully they're <laughs> tilting just thinking about it, but... I've just been down on Shelby Miller for the last three years. I know that the win total and all that from last year was fluky. Other than Roto, it doesn't really matter. We know that's going to be kind of normal. But this is a guy that's probably a low to mid-threes ERA guy, kind of league average whip. The best thing about him is that you get three years of control, and I don't know if that necessarily made Arizona that much better. They were a pretty good team last year. Zach Grinke signing there was a huge boost. I think that's a great move for them if they want to be competitive this year. But they had other young pitchers. Blair was one of them. Guys that are ready to be in the big leagues, I think, at some point in 2016. I think Blair's a, a starting pitcher at some point, probably in the second half now, because Atlanta's going to want to wait to start up the service time. Braden Shipley, maybe Archie Bradley stays healthy and puts it back together. I don't know. I just think they had enough arms. Zach Godley's an arm that some people like is at least a back-end starter. I didn't really see the need to go get Shelby Miller when it cost them Swanson, Blair, and Enciarte. I my, my theory as to why they sort of proceeded ahead with this is that we, we know they were in on talks with Ho, or for Jose Fernandez with the Marlins, and I think that they used the Marlins' asking price on Fernandez to justify the asking price on Shelby, whereas, like, I, I mean, I think the Marlins were asking for, you know, a package I probably wouldn't have even done for Jose – and I love Jose. And then they were just like, well, if that's what they want for Jose, then this is probably fair for Shelby. And, uh, you know, I look at, like, the Cubs getting John Lackey on a two-year deal. Obviously, he he probably went there with aspirations of winning World Series. But I don't know what it would have cost to get a guy like that. But, I mean, you'd rather pay Lackey, like, two for 40, I think, than, than give up uh, your top, you know, two of your top three prospects in a deal like this. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's a situation where I wonder – you just have to wonder how much more it would have taken to get Jose. I would expect it to be quite a bit more, but if you're already paying up this heft uh, to match this price, I would think 
uh, throwing a few other players in there to get a guy like Jose. If you're going to go all in, I mean, I'd rather get a guy who is a legitimate ace than a, a middle-of-the-rotation type of guy. I mean, Shelby Miller, 42.3% ground ball rate. Yeah, I mean, he will get a lot more run support, but he, the change in parks, I think, could hurt him quite a bit. And the, the FIPS, uh, ex-FIPS over for each of the last two years, I'm just not, not completely sold on him. As far as short-term implications for, for some of the players uh, still in Arizona, you know, he, I think they're doubling down on their bet on Yasmani Tomas. I, I believe he'll, he'll be the guy uh, to start kind of replacing Enciarte, but they kind of have some fallback options. Do you think Peter O'Brien or, or Socrates Brito, James, uh, could end up working into a pretty significant role this year? I think that... You know, I would I would bet against Tomas holding that job all year unless, uh, I mean, if if he makes some drastic improvements at the plate, maybe. But you know, he wasn't good defensively, and he was maybe the worst hitter in baseball in, in the second half last year. So, I mean, I think expecting much out of him in 2016, even with the presumed at bats to start the year, is is pretty risky. Uh, not a big fan of either Brito or O'Brien, but I think if I were to take a flyer on one, it would just be O'Brien because of the power in that park. But for everything I've heard, his his outfield defense is pretty shaky, and uh, you know some contact issues. I think against upper upper echelon pitching would be an issue there. So not really high on any of the replacement options for Inciarte. I mean, Brito fairly impressive in a brief stint. I think it was 18 games at the at the major league level last year, uh, bypassing AAA. Some speed, a little pop. I just, yeah, I'm not. I'm with you as far as him not being a guy that I'm seeing as a somebody that's going to be an impact fantasy type of player. If you were to earn that job at some point, what about you, DVR? If you were to choose between Tomas, O'Brien, Brito uh, for fantasy next year, do you, would it be Tomas? Just given that he's kind of got the clear path, I think for 2016, I, I'd be more inclined to just roll the dice on Peter O'Brien. I think Tomas maybe ends up with the most playing time, but the Diamondbacks have reached a point with O'Brien where they really don't have anything left for him to prove at AAA. I think Brito ends up playing at Reno for most of the season. He just turned 23 in September, so he's not like overwhelmingly old for the level. Kind of an interesting player from a fantasy standpoint if he continues to run as much as he did in 2014. He was 38 of 48 at high A as a base dealer. It went down to 20 for 26 at double A. Still good, still contributing there, but I think it's a pretty big difference in terms of his potential value if he can show the ability to run against better batteries at AAA and eventually in the big leagues. And what about in Atlanta? I mean, uh, obviously Ender Inciarte is going to take on a pretty significant role, but uh, I would think they'd probably look, look to get some young younger kids involved. I think maybe the, the window's been pushed back to 2018 for this team a little bit, but do you think Malik Smith is somebody who could, who could step in and, and you know at least maybe not – solidify his his spot on the everyday uh, starting lineup but maybe somebody who surprises some people and, and fares pretty well I think he needs an injury to contribute uh, I think with Malik Smith he's just so small that he's he seems more like a a fifth outfield type like a Terrence Gore type player I mean it's it's a nice piece to have in the National League coming off the bench but uh, with, with Oliveira in the corner along with Marquecas and Wright Enciarte in center. They still got Michael Bourne on the roster. They still got Nick Swisher. Maybe both of those guys get DFA. I think they're both in the final year of their contracts mm-hmm. this year. So that's not necessarily going to be a problem in the second half, but I, I could easily see Malik Smith having to wait until late 2016 to even get that opportunity simply because they've got a glut of guys to play in those three spots right now. 57 stolen bases in the minors last year. Doesn't have much pop. What do you think about a guy like Smith, James? Uh, I think I'm I'm higher on him than DVR just as an overall prospect, but I I also think the you know I think Derek might have mentioned earlier like Inciarte might get flipped still so yeah if if that happens and I think you could see Smith get I don't know ninety or hundred starts maybe in in center field for them but you know with that kind of speed he really kind of only has to get on base at like a two ninety three hundred clip for for him to really be a, a pretty big asset in the stolen base category he's shown a really good job of, of making contact all the way up the the ladder so you know really just a guy that needs to put the ball in play and and get on base that way I, I agree there's not much power there but 
you know, stolen bases are so down that if, if he even played mm-hmm. like half a season for them in center field, I think there could be a 30, 35 stolen base potential. Yeah, and I really do think it probably would be wise to flip in Ciarte because while he is under c- control for, I think, four more years, I mean, that's uh, really the selling point, actually, because he's not really the kind of guy you build around in, in a big rebuild like, like they're trying there in Atlanta. But, you know, I, I gave John Hart some grief early on in his tenure with Atlanta, but got to give him a lot of credit for some of his recent trades. He's really uh, shaping that franchise pretty well. Sticking in the NL East, though, Another uh, team made a, a big trade. I thought it did well for themselves. The Phillies, in trading Ken Giles, they got Vincent Velasquez, Derek Fisher, also a player to be named later, Brett Oberholzer as well. Uh, but Velasquez, Fisher, really the, the key pieces there. I remember when this went down, I texted you, James. I was like, oh, no, Vincent, because I, I'm an owner of his in, in Staff Keeper League too. But, you know, the more I thought about it, it, it is good for 2016, even though I do worry that the Phillies may be – especially cautious with his workload after uh, I think he he didn't exceed 100 innings last year. So what do you think? Do you think this this is good for Velasquez long term? Uh, I don't think it really matters a ton long term, but I do think it is good in the short term just because I'm not sure that he was going to crack the Astros rotation, and I think he's kind of an obvious top three option really for the Phillies in their rotation. So I think – he should be in the big leagues for most of the season. I know that they their window to win isn't right now, but for a guy that's made seven starts in the big leagues, it's kind of hard for me to see them wasting pitches in his arm in the minor leagues. So uh, I like it for this year. I like the fact that he's going to the NL and he gets to face the pitcher and he gets to face the Marlins and the Braves. I think that's that's a nice setup that's for him. True. Uh, you know, not a guy that I've moved down my 2016 ranks. If anything, I think you could give him a little bit of a boost just because of the uh, more certain starts that he's going to make at the big league level. I'm, you know, I think we're both really high on him. I think he's got you know kind of a, a number three sort of floor, which is which is kind of crazy to say, but uh, definitely a big fan. I thought the Phillies did well, and you know, I think big league teams just continue to value proven starting pitchers and ace relievers way more than we would kind of imagine on paper just based on the way that the you know prospects have been super valued in the past i think that's kind of shifting a little bit yeah it's it's kind of surprising to me but a lot more emphasis on elite relief pitching this offseason i think that's kind of interesting the royals really kind of helping influence that Uh, but velasquez 88 in two-thirds innings last year has had tommy john uh, before, what do you think, Derek? Do you think he's a guy that in 2016 you're going to be targeting? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think with Velasquez, there's no reason why they, they can't just use him as a starter. I mean, they have the need, a uh, wide-open path to a spot in that group of five. I mean, it's Nola, Hellickson, Eikhoff, and then a, a group of guys like Morgan, <laughs> Oberholzer, Velasquez. Velasquez should be the front of those three. Maybe they bring in some other veterans, but it looks like Vincent Velasquez will pretty easily be the number four starter to begin the year. Long term, if the health injury, uh, health issues he's had, the injuries he's had throughout his career start to pile up to the point where they don't think he can be durable enough to start, he's a closer. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a, he's a guy that comes out and he basically is Ken Giles, so that they get they get Ken Giles back in the form of a guy that could be a number two starter by That's making true. this deal. And then Oberholzer, even as a throw in, I don't think he's completely without value in a real life context. He upped his ground ball rate this year typically has pretty good control like that that's the thing that really changed for him this year is walk rate spiked up i'm not a guy that's going to get you a lot of k's but i think moving to the national league especially that's going to be a decent fit so i, I could see both velasquez and oberholzer rounding out that rotation velasquez mm-hmm. being a useful even like a 14 team mixed league sort of target perhaps even a 12 team mixed league target as long as you avoid the occasional uh, difficult matchup i mean think about the nle still it, it's it's not it's not a situation where you're worried about facing these lineups, I mean, if the Marlins are completely healthy and D. Gordon can repeat what he did last year, you got Gordon, you got Yelich, you got Stanton, the top half of the order, at least in Miami, is decent. And you got the Mets, and the Nats are, are going to be pretty good offensively as long as they're healthy. But mm-hmm. getting, you know, starts against the Braves in particular, that's going to be <laughs> pretty valuable. Like, I, I think being on the Phillies, of course, he doesn't get to face the other weak team in the division, but it's a good spot to land in even if you're on one of Atlanta or Philadelphia right now for a pitcher. Yeah, I would agree. But if, if we're talking about, you know, if we're looking at that 88 and two-thirds 
uh, number from last year for Velasquez. Uh, I think it was 12 starts between double-A and the majors. How many starts could we set the over-under at for Velasquez next year? Is it like 15? I was thinking more like low 20s. I, okay. I would say like 21 and a half starts where they probably monitor his innings very closely. If they get a big lead or if they were to fall behind, they'd be pretty quick to give him the hook just to try to keep him uh, stretched out as long as they possibly can. I mean, they don't intend on competing at all in 2016, so they can focus entirely on his development and not – worry about the impact that has in any particular game. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, yeah, they, they might be low 20 starts, but they might not go six innings even, a lot of them. They could go, you know, five, maybe five and two-thirds, something like that. But I think uh, he'll make for a nice option. And, yeah, even if, you know, he, he they take him out of the rotation to manage the innings, they could easily slot him into a back-end bullpen role. <laughs> Uh, and he could thrive there. What about Fisher? I mean, James, I was looking at your prospect ranks on the site, and you have him, I think, 63rd, if I remember right. Uh, top 70 for sure. And the more I he's, dove into his numbers, it's pretty impressive. Uh, he's more than just a, a throw-in, obviously, in this deal. Uh, but, but how far away is he? Uh, he's going to actually be a little lower than that in the, the next set of rankings that come out. Uh, I mean, I think he's still a top 100 guy, but... Uh, closer to 100 than 50, I think, on, on the latest set. He's, you know, he. I just don't know if he's going to be an above-average hitter in the big leagues just because it's kind of impossible to really buy into the numbers he put up at Lancaster last year just based on the, that ballpark and that environment. I mean... Pretty I'm, eye-popping, though, as far as the power numbers. Yeah, but, I mean, there's been, you know, J.D. Davis hit, like almost 30 home runs there. I don't think anyone's racing to go grab him in mm. dynasty leagues. So, I mean, AJ Reed seems like the real deal. I think all of his, you know, his numbers were so good that like, I think you kind of are willing to overlook the fact that he was playing in Lancaster, but, uh, Fisher, you know, still hit 262. I think, you know, just an ISO just over 200. While that sounds like really good, I think most big league quality hitters would be able to do that at, at Lancaster. So, uh, still kind of waiting to see what he does at Double A as he moves up the ladder, but I think it's a it's a good overall trade for his fantasy value just because he's not going to be blocked when he is big league ready. I think in in Houston, it was going to be tough for him to necessarily be good enough to get a, a real look as an outfielder for them just based on their their organizational depth. Whereas in Philly, you know, I think him and and Nick Williams and you know maybe Roman Quinn might be the kind of the outfield of the future there. Well, it's interesting. Definitely Fisher, a guy to monitor as he moves up the ladder. Uh, we'll move on. I mentioned your Tapia Meadows article, James. Definitely check it out if you don't have a RotoWire subscription. Uh, get 10 days free on us. No credit card required. RotoWire.com slash pod to check it out. And uh, two guys we saw in Arizona and uh, a lot of the, the scouts we talked to really kind of high on Meadows. Even Jason Collette, when we had, we had him on uh, the show a while ago, su- said that he was pretty easily the best player he saw down there. Uh, Meta or Tapia, Rymel Tapia looks, you know, he, he's really sk- skinny. You know, he, he just doesn't have the build uh, that you'd expect from a typical major leaguer. But James, in your article, you kind of suggest that these are two guys that a lot of people won't have close together on prospect ranks, uh, but you do. Why is that? I just think that one is a ceiling proposition in Tapia and one's a high floor guy in Meadows. Like, I don't, I don't see Meadows – you know, I think his ceiling might be kind of Nick Markakis, and that's that's a good player, but that's not a guy that was ever going in like the first five rounds of fantasy drafts. Uh, or at least I, I don't think he was. I, m- I might not have been playing back in his his prime years, but uh, I, I doubt it. But, Tapia yeah. Tapia is super risky, obviously because of the frame, and uh, you know, there's some questions about whether he can handle center field, and then you wonder if the power would play in a corner, but. I think that his, you know, he hasn't failed yet. You know, I mean, he, he was put up way better numbers in the, the AFL than Meadows, and that doesn't really mean a ton, but it, it definitely shouldn't, you know, his AFL performance shouldn't, shouldn't ding his stock, I don't think. I think he's played in some pretty favorable minor league environments too, but he's going to play in a favorable big league environment if he gets there. So I, I think that that kind of counts in his favor. A really good ability to make contact. So I think there's a lot to like. I think that you definitely are worried about the frame, but I think he's, you know, I think he's got a really good kind of makeup and 
is the type of guy that might just take a little bit longer than someone his age at his level to kind of figure it out, but I'm not really to really ready to sell my stock on him yet. Yeah, I know there have been some concerns. I don't know if he helped to ease them at all this year, but about his ability to handle uh, off-speed and breaking pitches as well, uh, straight ball uh, was was his nickname, at least in, in one of the, the uh, Baseball America handbooks a couple of years ago. But uh, Derek, if you were to compare these players, did, did you like what you saw from Meadows? Uh, I know when we were there, I, I mean, Tapia didn't do a whole lot on the field, but did he did he impress you at all? His physical build was probably even more slender than I would have expected. I know a lot of times you get players from Dominican Republic, Venezuela, you know, other Latin American places. It just takes them a while to kind of fill out and, and add to their frame. He's certainly got room to, to bulk up, uh, but that was a concern. And in the, the two-strike approach, this was pretty well documented, I think, during the, the first pitch Arizona presentation. Is he really kind of scrunches down awkwardly. Yeah, it really narrows, strikes. shortens that strike tries, zone. Tries to make the zone a lot smaller, but I, I think that really kind of hurts him. Maybe it's something he'll get away from as he moves up. I mean, I'm still intrigued by any player that has that type of projectability and is on track to play half his games in Coors Field someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I'd be more inclined to go with the floor guy, in, 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 as James might have put him, uh, in Austin Meadows, because I think with Meadows, I mean, if he does become Nick Markakis, I think he's more like the early career Nick Markakis than the current version. If you look back... When Mark Hankis first got to Baltimore back in 2006, I mean, he hit 16 home runs as a 22-year-old, had a 799 OPS, really held his own upon arrival, had an OPS above 800 four years in a row, had a couple 20 home run seasons, drove in a bunch of runs in the middle of the order, used to steal some bases, kind of does everything. I think that's the type of player Austin Meadows will be. So I, I think it's, it is just a matter of preference. Do you like high-risk, high-reward? Do you like the guy that can be a cheap he'll be like in our keeper league for example he'll be a three dollar player for three years once he comes up and he might be worth 15 to 18 annually whereas tapia if everything goes right is like a 30 to 35 dollar player if everything goes right but then there's the downside that he's a five dollar player or a guy that barely makes it as much more than a fourth outfielder like that's that's the range of outcomes with him. So I think it's all a matter of, of preference as far as what you're investing in. Now, do you do you think he is going to be Nick Markakis, or do you think that that's like his ceiling? Because I, I don't think it's a – I think that is like a very fair ceiling, like an early career Markakis, but I'm not I'm not sold that he necessarily gets there, especially in, in the power department. I think the fact that he's going to end up potentially in Pittsburgh works against him for developing power because I don't think he's going to have like – Pedro Alvarez type power he's just not that type of physical player but at the same time I, I think he's big enough where you can see it more easily growing into his game you know when the when scouts say he projects to have I don't know 55 or 60 grade power down the road you can see it and believe it a little easier than you could if someone said the same thing about Tapia yeah. I, I definitely don't yeah I mean I, I definitely uh you know I, I think you make a good point about Pittsburgh I don't I don't see 60 or 65 but maybe maybe 50 55 uh game power but do you guys do either of you ding him at all for the fact that he's probably never gonna represent an upgrade to their current outfielders or is he far enough away where you just completely ignore who's currently on their big league roster you know i think team context is really interesting when comparing these two players because tapia well i mean they've all three of their current outfielders have been thrown around in trained rumors this offseason, and a lot can happen over the next year or so. Uh, but I think when Tapia is ready, there's going to be a clear path. Meadows, I think he's going to be ready sooner, but you know, there's really uh, no path to playing time for him, I mean, even on a part-time basis. So I just don't really see, uh, you know, barring a trade, him, him making uh, a real name for himself and solidifying a spot in that outfield until, you know, 2017 even. Austin, Austin Meadows is going to end up, end up in Atlanta. That's that's where he's <laughs> he's going to be a brave at some point, um, and that's just that's just how it's going to go down. I don't know if it's going to be like Julio Tehran going to Pittsburgh or what it's going to take for that to actually materialize. I guess thinking of him in terms of being a future pirate is probably uh, it's, it's an exercise in futility. Maybe they he, maybe they go get Freddie Freeman next year or something. Yeah, I, think, I mean imagine yeah. that. Like the Pirates had the pieces to do it too, yeah. and I think mm-hmm. when you get to a point where Pittsburgh is where a lot of your guys have developed into the players you expected them to be. The excess you have in your system currently should be used to fill that one void. And I think in Pittsburgh, first base actually is that spot right now. So I, I think they, they could certainly hook up on a deal like that. Uh, but as Meadows goes to, the thing I, I want to keep in mind, I mean, he's he's also reached double A at age 20. 
He's six three, listed mm-hmm. at two hundred pounds, and I think you could see him becoming like six three two twenty. So, physically speaking, maybe he can be a better player than Marcakis even at his peak. I think that's within the range of outcomes. Pretty wide for both players, though, to be completely honest. I mean, you don't want to put too much stock into it, but if we're just talking like eye test, I mean, Tapia looks small. You know, the the two strike approach is kind of strange, but. Meadows really fits the part of a major leaguer. He just has that build, has that look, and uh, he does he does look the part. But it's a situation where you know the, the lack of a path to playing time. I don't want to dig him too much because a trade could open up and he could be excellent. Uh, I mean, the, the, maybe the ceiling isn't as high as a guy like uh, as with a guy like Tapia, but I think uh, once he's playing, he's going to be a guy that will be owned in all mixed leagues in fantasy. Uh, but we'll move on. Definitely check out James's piece. Good stuff. Uh, we're going to finish with a discussion of the top five prospects. James, you're working on your updated top 200 for the magazine, and uh, just interesting to, to take a uh, you know glance at this, get some other opinions as well. Uh, you currently have Byron Buxton back atop your, your prospect uh, rankings. I know for a while you had him below uh, Seager. Is that right, or did you just remove him when he was called up to the majors? Uh I think there might have been a time when they were both out. Or actually, no. I think Buxton was out because he was up, and Seager was still down, and then okay. and then yeah, Buxton yeah, got hurt. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's, still... that's why Seager. I mean, I, I definitely the reason I wanted to talk about the top five is just because I've really gone like I've had Giolito at at five the whole time, but the four hitters I have ahead of him: Buxton, uh, Corey Seager, Jan Mancata, and Nomar Mazzara, I've I've flip flopped all those guys like all over the place in the top four over the past few weeks. So I just kind of wanted to get your guys' take on on what your top fives would look like. I, I have Buxton over Seager just because I think his ceiling is so much higher than Seager's ceiling. Personally, I, I think I think Seager is probably the safest prospect in the minor leagues, right? Or the safest person that qualifies as a prospect. But Buxton, you know, he's got like top three overall pick type of upside and I just the more I think about it I I think you have to kind of look past some of his numbers and like the twins have done kind of a iffy job of of sort of handling him in my opinion but I think once he gets everyday bats in the big leagues I think it's it's kind of only a matter of time before he develops a new you know stud so I definitely would get the argument for Seager I'd get the argument for Mancata or Mazzara too honestly I think that they're age and their production last year I think you know both are incredibly safe guys even uh, for players that are that young so I definitely love all four of those guys but I, I have Buxton right now as my top guy yeah I actually have Seager and Mancata ahead of Buxton that's really not an indictment on on Buxton whatsoever as as far as uh, my thinking towards this it's just that I, I, I like Seager and Mancata a lot and you know that sample with Buxton last year don't want to read too much into it because that was a pretty small sample, but not totally insignificant. Uh, and I think there were really, you know, the the strikeout numbers, the the whiff numbers, the swing strike rate, the the O contact or the yeah the outside the the strike zone contact numbers really kind of worried me. Not walking really much at all either. Uh, I just think it, plus Paul Mulder said just recently that you know he could start the year at AAA if he's just unable to really. Uh, impress the entire coaching staff at spring training. How much are you buying, Derek, into Buxton's 2015 numbers with the big club? I mean, I think anytime you have a player getting first exposure to big league pitching, you you run the risk of a sub 600 OPS. Like that's mm-hmm. that's in the range of any player seeing big league pitching for the first time. And when you consider that Byron Buxton almost skipped Triple A entirely and barely spent probably spent less than a half season at double a because of the injury he suffered at the end of 2014 all the time he missed in 2014 as well cut the amount of time he spent at high a it's like this guy's been fast-tracked and hurt which is a a dangerous combination because it makes it really difficult to evaluate what he's been able to do all along the numbers at every single stop could have theoretically been better if he'd spent more time there so we really don't know just how good this guy can be based on anything we've seen in the minor leagues, unless we go as far back maybe as what he did at low A. You know, he was pretty healthy in 2013, and he completely dominated low A and high A mm-hmm. as a 19-year-old, which is, is really encouraging to me. Uh, the Twins don't need him to hit for a ton of power. I mean, maybe in his peak seasons he hits 15 to 20 bombs, but I don't think you're going to see that anytime soon. I think he's going to be an asset as an elite base dealer. I think in terms of statistical comps, I think of him as like a Jacoby Ellsbury roto player when Ellsbury's healthy 
and, and playing well, like that's mm-hmm. that's a really impactful guy. That's a first round fantasy pick at some point in the not so distant future. But I think the short term does give me some pause. The Twins have a glut of outfielders. Molitor's comments, you take them with the appropriate grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a, a slight concern for the short term. I have Corey Seager ranked ahead of Buxton right now. I, I think it's a coin flip as to which one you like better. Uh, I think the, the thing about Seager that's always stood out to me is even while his brother, even while Kyle Seager, has sort of overachieved, I think, compared to what people thought he'd be as a prospect, the line all along continued to be, his, wait till his brother gets here. Corey's even better than this. And mm-hmm. it, that line didn't go away as Kyle Seager kept improving. People kept saying that same thing. So maybe I'm just going too much off of what I've, I've read and, and what I've heard about Corey Seager. But I don't know. I feel like he's a high average, like 25 to 30 homer guy in the not-so-distant future, a guy that can run a little bit. Um, not going to be you know 20 steals or anything like that, but maybe gets you 8 to 10 bags to go with 25 home runs and a really good average. Dodgers will put him in the heart of the order. He'll drive in a lot of runs. I mean, for Buxton, you're talking about a table setter, a guy that eventually settles in at the top of the order, scores 100 runs in his good years, maybe even 110 or more. Um, and the thing about Buxton, too, I want to throw this out there just for, for your guys, uh, for your, your, your perspective on this. Mike Trout, when he first came up to the big leagues, again, very young at the time, but his first exposure as a 19-year-old back in 2011 Played 40 games. He had a 671 OPS. He had 220 of the 281 on base. I mean, he walked nine times in 135 trips to the plate. It looked like he was just a guy, like mm-hmm. a, a prospect, a good prospect that would take a couple of years to develop. He came back the next year and posted a 963 OPS with 30 homers and 49 steals. So it, it can be that quick when you're talking about a player of that caliber. And I think Buxton does fit a similar profile to Trout. So it's just a matter of uh, adjusting the home run expectations accordingly. And I think Buxton's combination of injuries makes that even more difficult. But for now, I've really dialed back just how much power I expect Buxton to provide at least in the next couple of seasons. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't really think the power – I mean, I just don't really know if you can compare him to Trout, really. I mean, you can because he's he's a five-tool guy, arguably, but I don't really think that power is going to be to I, the point where he's going to be hitting 20 homers anytime in the in the near future. I, I That's why I think we have different guys atop our list is because I actually do think there's more power there than, than you guys are maybe letting on. I mean, like his raw power is, is pretty insane. Like he's he's hit balls, you know – 450 460 in in minor league games he had like a walk-off ball that i think he had like 460 last year in a game i mean he's got got pretty impressive raw power i think he's only going to fill out as he as he matures it might not be over the next couple of years that he that he gets to 20 homers but i definitely think he's going to get there i think he's going to be about a 25 homer guy in his prime so uh, as long as he doesn't lose too much on the base pass i think he could be looking at 25 40 uh 40 steals and you know, really high average at top in order. So that's that's probably the difference. If I thought Buxton was like a 15 homer guy, then I would have Seager ahead of him. But I, I definitely like Buxton's power a bit more than that. Yeah, and I'm definitely not you know, writing off the possibility that he could totally turn it around next year and be a a huge fantasy asset. But two homers last year in, in his 46 games, uh, that's with those high swing and miss rates that you usually see with big power guys. So I think it, it may take a little while. Derek, you mentioned the the injuries with Buxton. They haven't been, you know, anywhere like in his body that's you know one particular recurring injury. But do, does the totality of the injuries, them adding up, worry you at all? Well, I mean, I think the one was the concussion right from the outfield, yeah, that was scary. which is just completely random and not a, a knock against him at all. Also broke his hand, I think, in the AFL last year. Yeah, he got hit by a pitch, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he's had some pretty unusual injuries that I don't look at him and say, okay, this guy's going to be playing 125 games a year because he's Ellsbury, right? I, I, I think it's more of the short-term statistical outlook is more like that as opposed to any real concerns about him being durable enough. I mean, this guy's going to be a star. To have mm-hmm. him ranked second behind Corey Seager, it's, you know, it, it's again, it's kind of a coin flip for me. Yeah. Again, I have him behind Mankata. The numbers, obviously, for Mankata last year jump off the screen. Uh, and, and really what we heard from uh, the, the scouts down in Arizona really kind of reaffirmed what I think of Mankata. And I, I just think he's going to be a star. And I actually don't think he's as far off as some people think. Of course, he spent most of this year at that low A, but I think he could move pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, the, the Red Sox are pretty well set right now, but I think uh, 2017 we could be looking at him as, as a breakout guy. But uh, getting back to Seager real quick, James, do you factor in at all 
the the possibility. I think it's a very real possibility that they'll move him off of short, or do you think that uh, he'll see enough time this year, uh, you know, to where in, in dynasty keeper leagues he'll have eligibility uh, twenty seventeen, and it's just not a huge factor for you. I I think Seager moves off short eventually. I think that there's a non-zero chance that that happens a lot sooner than people think. I I, I would bet on him sticking there for a few years, but. You know, right now they have Jose Peraza on the team, and there could come a time when their optimal lineup is Peraza at short and Seager at third. Uh, obviously, Justin Turner's still there too. So, you know, there's there's a lot of moving pieces there, but I, I think at, at six four two fifteen, he's gonna you know at best kind of follow an A Rod, uh, Cal Ripken type of trajectory where he's he's at third base for like the second half of his career, which isn't isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, if you just imagine what you're going to project him out at and you imagine him at third base instead of shortstop, there's definitely some some luster lost there. Yeah, I mean, he's got the power to, to profile pretty well there, but I, I agree that you know third base has gotten uh, – I mean, it's kind of top-heavy, but there are a lot of options, and I don't know if he'd really be uh, a lock as a top-five type of, type of third baseman uh, annually. But uh, getting back to Mankata for a second uh, – James, you have him third on your top five. DVR, you have him fourth. And again, saying you have a guy as the fourth best prospect in baseball isn't any sort of indictment on the player. Obviously, you like him, but you have him lower than us. Anything that really concerns you with him? Or is it kind of just the uh, the, the proximity, uh, the uncertainty, the playing time, and when he'll be up? Yeah, kind I of, think that's all it is for me. I think Mankata's going to be a star. I put A.J. Reed ahead of him because it seems like A.J. Reed. In some ways, he's like Goldschmidt in terms of just mashing at every every place he's been. I looked at his home road splits even during his time in the Cal League. It wasn't like he hit 80% of his home runs at Lancaster or anything like that. I mean, it's a hitter-friendly league, but it, it was actually, I think, a reverse split as far as his home and away home run totals go. This is a guy that I think is going to be ready in 2016, perhaps by opening day, too, could be on the roster, if not soon after. They say it's Jonathan Singleton currently. It's his job to lose. I mean... Come Jonathan on. Singleton's been disappointing us for years, so I don't expect that to change anytime soon. It's just one of those things, too. There's a decreasing amount of power available in the game. So to have a prospect at first base even that can hit you 30-plus home runs and be anchored in the heart of a really good Houston lineup, I think that makes Reed all the more appealing. But Mankata, if you're drafting beyond this season especially, and, and I know these are like top five prospects you are thinking multiple years, if you're throwing this year out especially, I think Mankata's ahead of Reed pretty much on anyone's list. Yeah, I would think so. Both of these guys are available in our Staff Keeper League too, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Both will definitely go in next year's auction. Uh, if we're talking about Keeper League auctions, uh, how much are you paying up for each of these guys respectively, James? Well, I mean, you don't have to tip your hand too much because we're going to be in some bidding wars. But I think Reed should be the third hitting prospect taken in, in single season snake drafts this year behind Buxton and Seeger. I you know, I agree with Derek. I not sure it'll be opening day. I think they're probably gonna play the service time game, but I think he'll be up in, in late April, starting every day for them at first. I I contemplated having him ahead of Lucas Giolito just because of the inherent risk with pitchers, but you know, the the bar to clear at first base to be a first round pick is so high Mm -hmm. whereas I think if Moncada and Mazzara both do what I expect them to do then I think they're both going to be kind of on the edge of that first round every year in their prime whereas Reed could be kind of a guy you know he could be like Jose Breu like no one's taking Jose Breu in the first round this year but you know it's going to be extremely productive uh just the the fact that he's a first baseman I, I ding him a little bit there but yeah I mean I'm a big fan of his you know I think he's he's a guy I'd go pretty aggressive on in in auctions this year and, and especially that league that auction but Moncada is the more interesting one just because you're you're definitely going to have to stash him I think for all of all of 2016 so I think you're kind of punting on 2016 if you want to own him in that league because you're going to probably need about 20 bucks to to get him and at that point you're you're playing with a lot less money than everybody else for your 2016 roster yeah that's absolutely true it- Staff keeper league won last year. I bought Mankata for twelve. So, and after the season he had, it, it's only going to skyrocket uh, if he's available this winter. Uh, 
DVR, again, you have Mankata 4, then Giolito 5. I have Giolito 4 ahead of Nomar Mazzara. Love Giolito and obviously the skill set. And also, I mean, he could obviously be a pretty major contributor uh, this year. Hopefully Dusty Baker takes it easy, doesn't let him go too deep into games early on. But do you think that if we're talking 2016, Giolito's a guy, I mean, we've been doing our top 350s for 2016, a guy that definitely should be drafted in most formats? Yeah, I think he's right around the bottom part of that list for me as someone you should take the flyer on in a redraft league because it may only be a couple of months before he's up. This guy's only made eight starts at A, so maybe he heads back to Harrisburg, goes six or seven starts there if those go well, gets a brief taste of AAA, and by the end of June, he's possibly contributing in the Nats rotation for good. I mean, this is a special talent. This is a guy that looks like a pure number one starter it's rare to have a prospect that can get that label and uh, Giolito I mean if he if he hadn't had Tommy John coming out of the draft may have been the first overall pick that year he certainly would have been considered for it so this is a guy that seems like he has all the tools necessary the, the deep arsenal the breaking stuff the velo the physical size at six six two thirty to hold up and be a workhorse year in and year out I think this is a, a really special player and it's for me it Probably wouldn't even happen that often. If you look at a top five any given time, you're going to see a pitcher in there, but he's just that good. Yeah, I mean, he's Julio Urias is, is up there for me as well as a kind of a top 15 overall prospect. I think Giolito really stands out as the top pitching prospect in baseball, kind of head and shoulders, even above uh, the, that second tier. James, again, you mentioned uh, Nomar Mazar. I know you've been high on him. We talked about him several times on the podcast in the past. Uh, but he, like Giolito, is a guy, uh, and Buxton, and Seeger, uh, and Reed as well, but a guy that, uh, single-season leagues, 2016, a guy that could make a pretty pretty big impact, could have a pretty special season. Uh, but any concerns that he spends a couple months in the minors to start the year? I think it's just it's going to be really hard to say until the you know hot stove season kind of dies mm-hmm. down. I think the Rangers are going to be a team that, I assume gets pretty active at some point here. They've just got so much surplus on the position player side of things that I think they they probably make a move or two that, that might open some things up for Mazzara. I would imagine he's the guy that when you know they call about Jonathan Lucroy or they call about Jose Fernandez, that he he's the guy that the other team asks for first and that they say no to. Uh, pretty quickly in those discussions so I, I definitely think they're going to try to do whatever they can to make a spot for him as soon as possible in 2015 I was actually a little surprised they didn't bring him up last year given the fact that they were trying to contend and that they were basically getting nothing from Josh Hamilton on the offensive side or defensive side in in left field so you know kind of surprised they didn't do that I mean he it's kind of crazy but he, he was actually better at triple a than he was at double a as a as a 20 year old so you know, I think his he's just a guy that continues to get better month by month. I think that power, you know, he only hit 14 homers in the minors last year, but I think that's pretty misleading as to what he'll do in his prime years in the big leagues. I think there's 65, 70 power there, so I think it's going to be a annual 30-plus homers from him between ages of, like, 24 and, and 30. So, you know, one of the safer guys, like probably about the safest 20-year-old prospect I can I can remember on the position player side. The big chill, Nomar Mazzara. Looking forward to seeing him. Uh, real quick before we go, uh, don't mean to put you guys on the spot, but Jose Miguel Fernandez left Cuba pursuing an MLB deal. Any initial thoughts on him? And James, I mean, he's 27, but any idea uh, where you might throw him uh, among your top 200? I think those are the toughest guys to rank. Uh, it's easy to rank guys that are like 18 or 19 or 20 mm-hmm. and you know they're going to spend a couple of years in the the minor leagues. Uh I guess it kind of depends where he goes. Yeah. I, I would I would imagine probably I mean, he's 5'10" 185. I mean, which isn't a total knock. I mean, I hear the bat speed, play discipline's great, but again, I, yeah, not having eyes on him too. I'd probably imagine in the top 50, but I I honestly don't like I don't like having to rank guys. Like I don't like having to rank Byung Ho Park just because I don't <laughs> think he's comparable to like players that are still developing. Like it's just it's just apples and oranges, and it's it's kind of a pain. It's so subjective, and uh, you know Hector Oliveira is a guy that I struggle to rank just because I 
it's so hard to compare him to like I have him ranked kind of next to Aaron Judge right now. Those two players couldn't be further apart developmentally, uh, so that that becomes difficult. I think he'd, he'd be a top fifty guy, but definitely interested to see where he lands. Yeah, what do you think, DVR? I mean, again, it will depend on where he lands, but do you see him being a, a, a single season asset this year? Yeah, maybe. I mean, second base, it, it's thin enough where he could probably play in like a fourteen team league for sure. Maybe even in twelves, depending on where he lands, what kind of, what kind of a lineup that is, and, and where he's hitting in that lineup. I mean, I, I could see it's like the White Sox going after him. They've got a lot of Cuban players already. It seems like they have the need at the Keystone, too. I'm not sure uh, Carlos Sanchez or Micah Johnson necessarily has to be a regular for them this year. It gives them more flexibility at short if they get a guy that can lock in at second base as well. So I think he's maybe like a 8-10 to 10 homer guy, good average, and then the runs in RBIs just hinge on where he lands and which lineup that actually is. Yeah, James mentioned Park. You had a blog you wrote recently about him maybe being a fantasy asset this year. Uh, quickly, why is it that you see him being maybe a, a potential bargain? Well, the ADP, based on some of the early mocks I've done for redraft leagues, is outside the top 200 overall. I don't think it's going to change all that much now that he's signed with the Twins. I think some people are going to look at that as a reason not to take him because target field tends to be a more pitcher-friendly sort of environment. This is a guy that has back-to-back 50 home run seasons in the KBO. Uh, Jung-Ho Gung had one of those before he came over, and, and I think they're very different players as far as what they bring to the table. The big question for me is what the batting average looks like. I, I could see Park being like a 245-250 type hitter with 20 to 25 home runs and maybe 75 or 80 runs driven in because I think he's going to hit near the heart of the order. I think that's the appeal there. The Twins are saying they want to DH him. They don't want to have Maurer uh, move off first base or anything like that because there's not really anywhere else he can play. I don't think Park's going to play in the outfield. So for, for this year at least, he should have first base eligibility depending on how your league gives him his initial uh, available position eligibility. Uh, but I, I think it's just a matter of cost versus potential upside that brings me to him. Nothing mm-hmm. that I've like watched on video or anything I've heard or read about him that makes me think he's a lock to be productive. It's just that at that point in the draft, you really have nothing to lose, and it seems like that type of raw power could translate uh, just based on the fact that Gung's power, I think, translated better than people expected it to. Yeah, the bat speed really helped Gung adjust well. It'll be interesting to see where Park goes next week in our Rotowire uh, magazine mock draft. I think uh, maybe that price creeps up closer to spring training, but definitely a discount over these winter months. That'll do it for us, guys. Thank you for listening to the Rotowire Prospect Podcast. Uh, thank you, Derek, for joining us, and we'll be we'll try to do it again uh, early next year as well. Guys, take care and uh, happy holidays. This is the story of Harry's. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. Then one day, an ordinary guy got ripped off buying razors. He was so fed up that he and his best friend started a company to fix shaving. They called it Harry's. By taking less profit and selling online, Harry's can offer quality blades for less. You can even get Harry's 5-blade razor and shave gel for free when you sign up. Just cover shipping. Click or go to harrys.com and enter code RAZOR at checkout. That's RAZOR, R-A-Z-O-R. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.